1: as always, my job is to find the exceptional individuals in their fields and bring them to you and ask them questions they don't normally get asked. And today is not even not an exception. I think it's an example. I have uh, Brian J. Ford. He's a very prolific research scientist who launched major science programs for the BBC. Uh, his books have pioneered new approaches in bringing science to the public. Uh, over 130 editions of his books have been published around the world, and he appears in TV programs, uh, you know, all over the world. Uh, he was a Nesta Fellow, two thousand four to two thousand seven. Uh, he's just tremendous accolades and in uh, science, he's been around for a very long time. So, Brian, thanks for coming. How are you doing today?
2: Well, uh, well, you've reminded me that I've been in it for a very long time. Um, that that's no way to start. Yes, in fact, I mean, I'm eighty now. So technically speaking, I never thought I'd ever get to eighty, let alone be talking to you.
1: Well, congratulations! I hope Thank you, you very much 100, indeed. One hundred and beyond, you know. So.
2: <laughs> Who knows?
1: Well, Brian. Um, <laughs> So we were just saying offline, there's so many things I could ask you, but since you're a great science communicator, uh, if you don't mind, can we, maybe we'll talk about the current situation with the, uh, you know, the COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 virus and what yes. your thoughts are.
2: Well, uh, they've invented this rather absurd name, COVID-19. Uh, this is SARS. It's a, a new form of the SARS virus, which everybody remembers from 2003. Um, It isn't uh, totally new. It is a a new strain of the SARS virus. And what ought to be said is that it is much more infective than SARS. But having said that, um, it in many cases doesn't kill as many as SARS did. But but SARS in 2003 was quite easily brought under control. There were just over 8,000 cases of SARS with 774 deaths. So it's about a a 10% mortality uh, so far worldwide. There have been 375,000 cases of the newsars with 16,000 deaths. Um, part of the problem, though, I think, is that, and I think the Chinese started this, and they were roundly condemned for it if they did. But we have been almost as bad, in that they didn't really act as they should. They they almost hid it up. But we're doing almost the same thing here. You remember the American president was very full of the idea that, oh, you might be a little bit ill, but it was well under control. We've had Mm. exactly the same here. Um, The latest figure I saw for the number of cases in Britain was 5,583. But we all know in science that it's well over 200,000. It may be a quarter of a million by now. And people keep on, as it were, dumbing down the reality. Uh, The British government just a couple of days ago said that Bars, restaurants, schools, universities must be closed. By law, many had closed already. Right. But they only did so because uh, President Macron of France said that unless you do it, which is what they've done in France, unless you do it, I'm going to close the frontier and you will not be able to come from England to France. I mean, he actually told the British government that you have to close. Otherwise, they still wouldn't. And the British prime minister was saying cheerfully, you know, I'm still shaking people's hands, uh, uh, you know, and... Yet, if only they'd jumped on it at the outset and had really made sure that they traced every case, that they treated every case, and they monitored the contacts, which they could have done, it would have been much simpler. Uh, The present time, um... you you see, people couldn't get tested. My daughter, for example, had an illness that she still thinks might possibly have been um, this new form of SARS. Uh, And she is a prescribing nurse. She is a, a senior nurse she she works for the national health service and she said that you know I better be tested and they said no you can't be tested because you haven't come from one of the suspect countries and we still sure. in this country are only testing people who've got the symptoms and are in hospital but that's no good you've got to be proactive and i can tell you this for you it works take a sample of three 300 victims right take a, a standard sample of 300 victims of this new disease in italy 30 of those will die in america and in the uk about 15 of those will die. In France, 12 of them will die. In Germany, one person. One person will die because the Germans, being very bureaucratic and organized and official, the Germans insisted on f- tracing every case and tracing all the contacts and dealing with it very aggressively. And as a result, they've got the lowest mortality rate of anywhere in the world. If we had done that in Britain, or if you had done that mm-hmm. in America, it would be much the same for us. But it is.
1: Well, oh, okay. So... Some questions I'm not seeing being answered. For instance, in Italy, it's been on lockdown for a while. Why are the number of cases uh, growing so much? Is it that uh, in each household, there's, let's say, four members and one had it, and now all four have it? Is that where the growth's coming from? Like, what's your Yes.
2: Uh, well, there is a problem. Uh, people, uh, I remember we had youngsters in the street in England saying, oh, it's only flu, you know, we, we can manage with flu. What well, But flu comes on in two days the new disease comes on after a week. And people keep on saying in this country, and I think they say it in yours too, that if you get symptoms, you must stay at home. But by the time the symptoms are starting, you've already been ill for at least a week. And you've probably been infective for the last four or five days. So by the time you're ill with the disease, everybody that you've been with in the previous few days has very likely picked up the virus as well. That's the problem. So although... The Italians jumped on it and closed everything down. They were too late. And we are following Italy. If you plot the, the incidence of the number of deaths in this country, in, in England, uh, alongside the deaths in Italy, and the curves are the same. It's just that we're two weeks behind them. So whenever I turn on uh, the news on the Internet, I look at the Italian situation and I think, well, in two weeks' time, that's going to be what Britain is like. And it's not pretty.
1: Where do you think uh, it's going to top out for Italy? Like, How close are they to it, uh so it's stabilizing and then coming down and you know what what happened in china and south korea what did they do differently what have they been doing differently to control things
2: well both china and south korea have cultural differences to the west um the populations are very i was going to say subservient to the government but they're very they identify with themselves as a race americans do that you know to be an american is considered quite something to be british is not really regarded as terribly serious but but in countries like china to be Chinese is to be one of the great people of the world. They're very honored, the Han Chinese, to be Chinese. And picture the the pictogram, the character they use to write China. It's a rectangle with a line down the middle. And the rectangle symbolizes the world. And the line down the middle symbolizes China. And it's in the middle. The Chinese always see themselves as the one true person. So if the government says, you know, go home and, and stay, stay where... where uh, uh, where you can be isolated. The Chinese are probably going to do it. Say that to the Brits, and the Brits are going to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going down the pub. And that's exactly what they did. So it's a cultural thing. And, and South Korea is the same. The South Koreans, one of the most advanced civilizations in the world, their, their electronics, their technology, the automation of their society is way advanced of ours. Um, but they also are terribly proud. And if a government says to them, do something, they will do it. Whereas those of us in the West, in Europe and in America tend to be a little bit um, less subservient to authority and we don't take things quite so seriously. That may well be the reason.
1: So what do you think things are going to play out from here? <clears throat> what's it going to look like in the US and Italy and maybe the UK? What, what's it's entirely
2: impossible to know. When SARS began, there was a paper published in the United States in which the authors concluded by saying, this is a disease that threatens the survival of humanity. Zars um, had about 10% mortality. And yet, even then, it was seen as a, a threat. But but just over, it was 8,098 cases worldwide of zars, And it uh, by then was brought under control. But because we haven't stopped people with the virus infecting other people, it simply hasn't taken off here as it should. And it could well be that uh, a tenth of people you may have 40 million cases in the United States, for example. If um, uh, 10% of those die, that's, that's coming up to half a million people who are dead. Now, um, who is to say whether that's going to happen? If people do stay home and they do stay isolated and they stop passing it around, then it would top out way, way below that number. And I only hope and pray that it does. After all, at age 80, I'm very much in the, uh, in the category of high risk. And we have... Uh, a protocol for handling things, do you know one of the things that nobody ever mentions they talk about um, keeping your distance well so you don 't inhale stuff, and right. they talk all the time about washing your hands and being very careful with uh, personal hygiene, but nobody ever mentions the stuff that your hands themselves touch. Nobody talks about picking up the virus from the handle of a supermarket trolley. Nobody talks about picking it up from the handle of a gas pump at a gas station. Nobody talks about picking it up from the mail that comes through your letterbox or from all the goods that you may buy online from the supermarket. Now, what I have done as soon as it started, weeks ago, uh, we started a protocol at home. Everything that comes, if it's a sliced loaf of bread in a plastic wrapper, or if it's um, a bottle of skin lotion or something like that, it is handled when it comes, it's lifted out of the plastic bag, it doesn't come into the house, it's lifted out of the plastic delivery bag, and it goes straight into a solution of hypochlorite bleach, say an egg cup full of bleach in a washing up bowl of, and it soaks for a minute or two, and then it's washed off and dried. All the mail that comes is either dropped into my wife's ironing board, and it gets ironed at high temperature before we open it, or if it's bulky, I drop it into the electric oven. And it cooks at 300 degrees Fahrenheit for 20 minutes in order to make quite sure, because the virus is sensitive, that it comes out sterile. So when I oh, open oh. my mail, it's sterile. When I open anything that's come by way of food, it is sterile. But other people who are keeping yards away from folk when they go to this, they're not doing that. They're picking up stuff that quite possibly somebody who is already incubating the virus has already been coughing all over. So why is it that we keep talking about how we wash our hands, but we never talk about how we stop our hands from picking up the virus in the first place?
1: So what, well, I mean, so do you think that that's going to be a major vector for transmission? Or is I'm it more certain of a minor that it view?
2: is. Uh, but the main reason I'm certain that it is, is only because the, the British government in particular has been emphasizing you must wash your hands all the time. What I'm saying is, OK, you may wash your hands, but what about washing the stuff that comes into your house? Unless you do that too, you're importing the virus and washing your hands isn't going to get rid of it then.
1: Do you think that there's a way to um, ease the restrictions on people being confined at home and still contain the virus? Or do you think that's going to be necessary and critical for a period of time?
2: It's going to alter the way the world behaves. Uh, When this epidemic goes away, we will all be aware that it might come back. It is going to alter the way that everybody behaves. Now, I've, I've never acted in quite the same way as other people, because I work with living cells. For example, when I go to the lavatory, I wash my hands before I go and have a wee, because I know where my uh, uh, family jewels have been. They've been tucked away inside my underpants. I don't know where my hands have been, so I always wash my hands before I have a wee. Everybody else washes their hands after. I wash my hands after as well, of course. Uh, In exactly the same way, I have never in my life used my finger to press a button in an elevator. I always use my knuckle. I never hold handrails. I lean on handrails by my sleeve. And I am aware that there are organisms on these things. And by altering the way in which I behave, I have never had food poisoning. And I've never had things like uh, the Norwalk virus when people all around me were getting it. And it is going to alter the way that we all behave. But to answer your question, your immediate question, no, we have to stay isolated. And the people who are going out party. I mean, in Britain, we had a most interesting situation. An awful lot of wealthy people in London have holiday homes. They'll have a second home by the seaside. So as soon as the government said, you don't go to work, you must go home, they all decamped out into the countryside and went down to the beach. And there they have been in huge crowds on the beaches. Now, they're going to get ill because they're now in the countryside, they will be attended by hospitals which are used to a few country people getting ill, not masses of people from London. And these country folk, who've never really liked people from the cities having holiday homes anyway, are now hating the sight of them because they're bringing the virus and they're going to crowd out the hospital. So yes, it's going to change the way we behave. And we, I'm afraid, have to restrict ourselves, although quite how a steelworker or somebody bottling drinks, or somebody operating a gas station is supposed to stay home and not go to work is beyond me.
1: Well, what do you think is going to happen, though, when uh, I don't know how many people lose their jobs and the economic concerns grow and grow and grow? Do you think there's going to be a loosening of restrictions because we're going to say, well, you know, this trade-off is uh, insurmountable, we have to just do what we need to do?
2: Well, the British government has acted in a quite remarkable way. They have said to all employers that the government will borrow money from the international banks. The government will give employers 80% of what their employees earn, so long as they don't fire them. The British government at the moment is going to announce a way in which they're going to pay a good living wage to everybody who is self-employed. The British government is going to buy shares in the British airlines so that they stay um, uh, financially Sound, and yesterday the British government took over the operation of all the railway companies in Britain because they were saying well we 're going to run into financial issues, so what the UK government is doing is taking over the financial responsibility and making sure that people who had suddenly lost their jobs are going to get them going to get them um, uh, stabilized. The problem you have in America is that because you are the only civilized country that doesn 't have a health system, people in America know that you always pay for things medical in in europe we don 't if I go to the doctor and he says I need a heart transplant or a new liver, I get it. And it doesn't cost a bean. But people in America know that if you go and get a blood test to see if you've got a viral disease, you pay for it. If they say you have to go to hospital and be treated, you pay for it. And you also have large numbers of people who are not registered, people who are not documented, illegal immigrants, and they too are catching it and not going to the doctor in case they get rumbled the authorities. So in in the States, you've got this particular problem, this particular economic problem, which means that there is a financial pressure preventing people, discouraging people from admitting they're ill. Whereas in Europe, people last month who thought they might be ill would just tell the boss, well, I'm going to go home in case I've got the virus. Um, And if you go to hospital, it doesn't cost you a bean. Now that is a problem that America uniquely has to face. The financial disincentive for people who may be patient with the virus admitting the fact to anybody else.
1: Do you think that the, um, I don't know, I mean, do you think that the virus will run its course, whatever that means, and the uh, numbers will come down and things will go back to normal, or at least a new normal? Or do you think that, uh, I mean, what's your, you know, I know no one knows, but what's your guess on what will happen over the next?
2: Well, I don't think the new normal is going to be the same as the old normal. I, I think our whole attitude to hygiene and to disease will change. Um, I think many people will probably... Um, place less emphasis on being in work all the time and realize that, you know, life is here for living. Um, and, And if that is a lesson, it would be a good one. I have sometimes had the impression that because viruses don't themselves reproduce, viruses get into your own cells and your cells then produce the virus. I sometimes have formed the view, you know, that The host of a virus produces new virus, which in the passage of time isn't quite as virulent as it used to be. And I would like to think that as time went by, this new virus would lose virulence because it's being produced by the patient it's infected. And in time, the disease may die away and die out and we may be free of it. After all, there have been no more cases of SARS after that epidemic. It went away and it never came back. And we do have to be particularly careful about the transmission of viruses from animal species into human species. Remember that Ebola, which is a member of the same family as Mm. this new form of SARS, Ebola uh, probably came from kids eating um, uh, African wildlife, possibly bats, curious. And it is also thought that the new COVID-19, as it's it's called, that that may have originated in bats too. The trouble is that some species of bird will also predate bats. And so you could possibly catch a virus from a bird that wasn't a bird virus, but was a bat virus. But I think the the, the habit in China and elsewhere of eating exotic creatures, um, I think that's going to change.
1: I hope so, yeah. Do you, do you think that viruses are alive or at least contingently alive when they enter no, a host? No,
2: no, no, they're not alive. Uh, viruses, uh, to be alive, the fundamental thing which you need to do if you're alive, is to reproduce. That's the fundamental thing of being alive, is that you can reproduce yourself. And viruses do not reproduce. They can't. What viruses do, they infect the cell of the host. Um, Viruses are like a wandering gene. And when they get into the cell, they take over the cell and they instruct the host cell to start making virus. So the father virus, as it were, doesn't make children viruses. The father virus commandeers the cell of the host and says to the cell, you make more of me. So no, they're not alive. If you're alive, you've got, to, you've got to breathe, you've got to show response to external stimuli, you've got to excrete, you've got to reproduce, and viruses don't do any of those. They are like little pirate genes, which have escaped from some sort of cell and get into cells of hosts, which they then take over and commandeer and instruct them to make more virus. But viruses themselves can't be alive because they cannot
1: on their own given that they're so small in terms of the scale of you know our cells and us as a host how do you think they find their targets so repeatedly over over so many years
2: depends on on how uh, life has favored them for example people always think smallpox was a terribly successful virus but no smallpox wasn't a successful virus because smallpox when it got into humans very often killed the human and of course if you kill your host then your host can no longer make more of you the the really successful viruses are not things like smallpox and the Ebola these successful viruses are viruses like the common cold because we all have those viruses in our nasal package, uh, passages and we don't struggle to survive when we have a cold the cold virus never destroys its host the cold virus lives inside you gets your cells to make more cold virus and keeps its head down that's the way to be successful if you're a virus. Um, when I look here, I can, it, we've explored an awful lot of this, this new disease, but I'm not sure that's the reason that originally you contacted
1: me. Well, I did want to ask you about, uh, you know, it, it seems like you've done some talks on cellular cognition, and I guess I'm kind of surprised that you don't think viruses are alive. I mean, I, I was going to ask you actually more questions about viruses, if you didn't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Um, why is there a incubation period and, you know, do viruses seem to use the cellular machinery to, to do some kind of like quorum sensing or signaling? And it just seems that they have agency. And therefore, even though they're, they're not active when they're not inside a cell, they do seem to be at least alive at a, at a point when they're inside no, a cell. No,
2: no, they're, they're, they're really totally dumb in that sense. I mean, when a virus gets into your body, um, there's every likelihood that nothing happens. I mean, people, people do. I've seen computer models where they, they have uh, little circles representing people. And the circle changes colour when the person touches another person because the other person is now ill. No, 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 it doesn't work like that. If you pick up a virus from somebody else, there's every likelihood that it may not go anywhere anyway. If it gets inside you, it may never become active. If it becomes active, it may be immediately wiped out by your own immune response. And if it doesn't and it gets into you, it may not make you ill. And it may just die out in, its, in, in the fullness of time anyway. Um, the chances that a virus which is as it were, which lands on you, makes you ill, is really quite small. Uh, Viruses very often land on us and have no effect at all. So you've got to go through a whole series of stages, if you are a virus, to make somebody ill. But the reason that you're not ill at once is, of course, because the virus will get into your body and we'll assume that this single virion is floating through the bloodstream and they can't move, they can't swim, they can't do much. They have to wait to be picked up by a cell. And then when they're inside... They will attach themselves to the cell's DNA and the cell will slowly start to produce virus particles. Now, the cell may produce um, 60 or 100 or perhaps a 1,000 virus particles, let's say 500. And of those, most will go nowhere, but 50 or so may get into other cells. And after a day or two, that cell may also start making. So it takes a long time before the number of virus particles being released into the body builds up to a large amount. Usually, with virus diseases, it's a few days, um, and very often, of course, once a virus does take over the body, then in cases of the great virus diseases like smallpox and Ebola, then it just takes over the whole body, and um, death is is unpleasant. Uh, Ebola, which which the authorities were very slow to try and tackle when it emerges in in Africa, they always are slow. Don't know why they don't jump on it. But Ebola kills in a most um, gory and unpleasant way. Most people who die of Ebola die because their blood pressure falls to a dangerously low level and they simply cannot survive with such low blood pressure. And the reason that the blood pressure falls so low is because the Ebola virus just starts the whole body bleeding. All the organs bleed. You bleed from the ear, you bleed from the genitals, from the anus, you bleed from the mouth, you bleed from the nose. Every part of you starts to bleed. Your blood starts to break out all over the body. And so much of the blood breaks out. The poor patient has no longer a high enough blood pressure to survive. And in fact, it's low blood pressure that kills most people, not toxins or anything like that. It's low blood pressure that kills most people who catch the Ebola virus. And the one thing one ought to say about this new version of SARS that's out is that it does have a mortality, which uh, worldwide is probably a couple of one per- a couple of percent. but um, It could be 90%. It could be 100%. This virus could kill everybody. In fact, it is not. If you catch the new virus, the chances are that you won't be very ill. And if you are very ill, the chances are that you won't die. And once you've had it, you will be immune to it thereafter. That's what we call herd immunity, is when a whole community has had a disease and they've all got the antibodies now in their blood which means that next time that the antigen comes in, next time the disease comes in, they won't suffer from it. Um, Herd immunity is nature's way of vaccinating a population. And after this uh, epidemic, this uh, uh, massive pandemic has spread through human societies, the people who've had it, who by then will be probably the majority of the inhabitants, will be immune to it. And that means that give it a few years. And there won't be people without antibodies. And so there won't be people that the virus can infect. Meanwhile, we've got to get there. And that's not going to be fun.
1: Well, on a happier subject, um, throughout your long career, what, what would you say is some of the most amazing insights that you've gotten from your studies? Maybe controversial and amazing.
2: Well, um, I think my most interesting philosophical development in science is my observation that the living cell isn't just a part of the body. Um, see, I don't look at, at people the way that most people, uh, most people would look at a human person as being a bag of organs with one of everything down the middle and two of everything down the side. I don't look at people like that. I look at people and see them as a community of living cells. And all the cells have a degree of autonomy. And they happen to cooperate in a way that makes us talk and think and act and make love and hate people and have careers. Um, I see us as, as fruiting bodies, as communities of cells like incredibly complicated fungi. I don't see us as system engineering systems of organs at all. They often say that the body is a machine, but the body is not a machine. If you drive a machine 500 miles down the road, its tires get thin. If you run 500 miles down the road, your tires get thick. Soles of your feet will, will toughen up. No, we are not machines. We're nothing like machines. And when I was uh, in my 20s, I began to realize that living cells were much cleverer than we thought. And in recent years, I have actually interpreted videos taken through the microscope showing the way living cells behave. And cells can take decisions. Cells can work out what to do if faced with an unforeseeable problem. And you know what we call that. We call the ability to deal with an unforeseeable problem in a constructive way. We call that intelligence. And yes, a single living cell shows intelligence. And the intelligence that we show as humans is simply the concerted and amplified effort of our individual cells acting together so actually we're not intelligent at all it's our cells that are intelligent and that is an extraordinary
1: so uh, why is it that we sense that we are one entity yet we're composed of you know trillions of different cells and bacteria and, and other kinds of organisms like where does this uh sense of oneness come from when, you know, we're composed of so many disparate things.
2: It, I think the sense of oneness is simply something that we are taught and which we experience from when we're young and nobody ever challenges it. Because I don't actually see that oneness. I, I, you, you know how, for example, a pregnant woman will suddenly say, oh, I must have a, a strawberry jam and peanut butter sandwich. I suddenly feel like it. I think, well, her cells are telling her that there's something in strawberries and something in peanuts and something in bread that her body suddenly needs you know how suddenly you may say to yourself I don't feel quite right there are cells in your body that are are sensing something and and your being aware of it is is in some strange way uh, logging on to the way in which your cells themselves are feeling Um, I feel like a community of cells and I'm well aware of the fact Um, as you go through life the way your cells behave changes but when I look for example uh, at a Forsythia bush outside my front door and as spring began I said to my wife you see look it put out a couple of tiny leaves and one flower and it did that because it's just sensing what what is the air like what what is the climate like is it time to come out yet it only started doing it because daylight and night light got to be the same around about the 20th of March because this plant senses we don't know how this plant senses that that the sun is up the same length of time And it's down a 12-hour day and a 12-hour night. And that's when a lot of plants begin to wake up because they know, we don't know what it means to say they know, they know that now is the time to get going. But very often, I have a tree fern in the garden, and that tree fern will put out one frond just to sort of test the air and make sure it's safe for the rest to follow. This is like watching creatures. It's not like watching plants. Plants are very intelligent.
1: So in our bodies, um, you know, our somatic cells, at least, and our germ cells, like our, our cells, They appear to have, you know, complete allegiance to the one, to us. But what do you think about our microbiome?
2: Oh, well, the microbiome is is extremely. um, uh, I wrote about that first, oh, back in the 70s. And the the microbiome is the, there are more microbes in our bodies than there are human cells. And the microbiome is extremely, uh, it's very strange how, you know, there are industries that make masses of money out of telling people you've got to eat health foods, you've got to eat suits, you've got to do this, you need to take more of this, swallow these pills, swallow those pills. None of that, believe me, listeners, none of that is necessary. Swallows don't do that. Sparrows don't do that. Chipmunks don't do that. They know exactly what. It, it is It is impossible in the West to have a deficient diet if you just eat normal, varied food. No, but there's no such thing as a super superfood. Um, and th- our bodies know exactly how to control themselves and what it is they're doing. Just eat normal food and live a normal life and you will be healthy. I've I've known people get so obsessive at having to take pills and supplements and God knows what. It's a a multi-billion pound, a multi-billion dollar industry and it's all a complete and utter waste of time. Our cells know what they're doing and they have spent tens, hundreds of millions of years evolving to a state where they know. So just let them get on with it.
1: Well, what if you're eating processed food and you're not eating natural foods? I mean, cells, you know, wouldn't have been exposed to that.
2: No, nobody ever eats natural food. I mean, let's, let's just picture. Let us picture a natural meal. Let's go down back to the mother country. Let's go down into Western England and go to a thatched cottage and go inside. And there is... The old farmer chewing a piece of straw, sitting down and eating his natural food. So what's he going to eat? He's going to have wholemeal bread. He's going to have butter. He's going to have a slab of cheese. He's going to have a pint of beer or possibly a glass of wine. Okay. start with the bread. The species of wheat from which bread is produced is a man-made species. It was evolved by crossbreeding early grains and grasses about 8,000 years ago in what is now Yugoslavia, um, what became Yugoslavia. Um, That's where wheat began it even has its own latin name which is the latin name given to a species created by humans no genetic engineer in the modern world has done anything like that but they did things like that thousands and thousands of years ago then you've got the cheese and you've got the butter okay how on earth is butter natural butter is is congealed um milk fat from a cow so you take milk which is the secretion of the underbelly of cattle designed for calves. Unless you're a calf, milk is not a natural thing to have, cow's milk. You wouldn't drink fox's milk or raccoon's milk. So why would you drink the milk from cows? But we do. So you squeeze this secretion from modified sweat glands on the underbelly of cows, and then you whack it around until the fat solidifies, and that's your butter. If you want the cheese, which he's also going to have, then you take the milk and you leave it until it goes rancid and then it goes off and then it goes so appallingly um, putrid and bad that it solidifies and and begins to smell strongly and then fungi start to go it actually goes moldy this cheese and you call it Roquefort or stilton or gorgonzola and say how appetizing and wonderful and look at the beer that beer is made by by germinating barley seeds, barley is not a natural species, it doesn't exist in nature, you allow the barley to grow and then you heat it with charcoal in a fire to char it and then you mix it with water and then you ferment it with a yeast normally found on the surface of fruit and having no relationship whatever to wheat and then when this liquid has bubbled up you allow it to settle and clarify and then you pour it on a glass and call it beer. So here is a man sitting in his cottage, eating whole meal loaf of bread. How is that supposed to exist in nature? How is a yeast from fruit supposed to ferment flour and produce a bubbly loaf, which you then cook in an oven? How natural is that? None yeah, of that true. is natural. It is totally unnatural. It's traditional. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's uh, part of human history to have done it, but it's not natural. We never eat any natural food. Don't, kid yourself that processed foods are bad a hamburger for example which is which is lamb based around the world as being the classic example of a cheap nasty food hamburgers have nothing to do with america hamburgers come from hamburg um uh, and in exactly the same way um the sausages that you have in hot dogs they also come from europe so so a hamburger that is ground up beef sometimes with a little onion and spices in it's packed with uh, gherkins uh, uh with pickles um, the pickles, of course, aren't pickles. They're actually fermented gherkins. They're not pickles. And then you eat those with a bit of salad on one side. So you've got meat protein, you've got carbohydrate, you've got fat, you've got lovely salad vegetables. A hamburger or, or a hot dog with a salad on the side is a perfect meal. There's nothing in the least wrong with it. You're a bit underprivileged if you do nothing but eat that kind of stuff. But it is not bad food and i won't have people insisting that it is and that some of the rubbish that they eat is somehow good how good for you is pate de foie gras which is fatty yeah. liver and 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 so bursting full of saturated fats and cholesterol and every other unhealthy thing yet people would regard that as classy food and a hamburger they'd regard as rubbish i'd put it the other way around
1: well what's interesting to me from what you're saying is that microbes work on pretty much everything we eat and then if they haven't once we eat it the microbes within us work on it so it's amazing for any food that we encounter, microbes have to work on it at some point.
2: Well, the, the amount of the number of items of food that we eat that are fermented and produced by uh, microbes is quite extreme. I mean, you know, everything from uh, I mentioned pickles, but everything, you know, sauerkraut to beer and wine and cheese, I mean, and, and, and yogurt, almost everything that we eat that is popular and trendy is uh, fermented. And I'll, I'll give you one other good example. If there is a meal that we've all been told to avoid, at all costs, it is the grilled breakfast. You know, egg, hash browns or fried bread and uh, bacon. No, 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 that's really bad. Anybody who eats that is gross. That's disgusting. Now, go to any health food restaurant and the one food you're always going to find is a People love quiche. It gave rise to that saying in the United States, real men don't eat quiche. What a womanly, foppish, gay thing to eat is a pizza. Is, is a um, uh, uh, a quiche is the same as that breakfast the carbohydrate instead of being the fried bread or the hash browns is in the case along with the fat the egg instead of being fried is inside the filling of the flan and the bacon in the form of ham is chopped up and inside the filling so when you eat a quiche you're eating the same ingredients as that fried breakfast but serve it as a fried breakfast and it's terribly terribly bad serve it as a quiche and it's nothing but healthy how ridiculous is that and I don't think you find <laughs> anybody else other than me who says so.
1: That's funny. Well, I mean, you know, it's uh, human psychology governs everything. We're seeing, you know, tremendous examples of that right now. So what's, what's rational versus uh, how we feel about it and how we react psychologically are very different. No?
2: I've always been interested, too, in, in the man who first used a microscope, effectively, and that was the Dutchman, Antony van Leeuwenhoek, who in the middle of the 1600s, imagine that's a long time ago, Um, he is the person, the first person who actually looked at microbes through a microscope. And when I was a kid, I learned about him at the King's School in in Peterborough here in Cambridge. And um, my my teacher, Dr. A.G. Lowndes, told me about this man, Levenhuk, and I was amazed by him. And uh, in the fullness of time, I discovered that just nine of his little microscopes had survived. And in 1981, I was invited by the then president of the Royal Society, Sir Andrew Huxley, to go and look at Leeuwenhoek's original letters from the 16 and 1700s preserved in the Royal Society. And would you believe it? But as I turned the pages of the letters, amongst the letters, and forgotten about for more than 300 years, were little packets of his own specimens that he had made and which had lain there ever since. And then I had the most extraordinary thing a couple of years ago, within the space of 12 months, two new microscopes of his which uh, no new microscopes had been heard of for more than 300 years. Two new microscopes suddenly appeared. I had a phone call from um, auctioneers in London, and they said, could you come and have a look at this little silver item? And it was one of Leeuwenhoek's microscopes. It had been, um, no one knows how it got there, but it had been in a box of scrap silver that a London silver merchant had. And yes, that was one of his microscopes. And then within a year, I uh, had a message from a friend who said, uh, have you looked on... um, eBay, there's something interesting on there. So I logged on and had a look. And there was what looked just like a Lavenhook microscope for sale, believe it or not, on eBay. It had been dredged out of a canal in Delft, which is where Lavenhook lived and worked. And there it was. And so I thought, oh, I'll bid for this. Uh, And suddenly it disappeared. And I then had an email from a man who'd been in contact with me in the past from Spain about going to lecture, a chap called Thomas Camacho, a doctor. And he had realized what it was. So he contacted the seller direct and said, I'll buy it from you. And I think he paid something like a thousand bucks for it. Well, the last Lavenook microscope that sold at auction cost the buyer half a million dollars. I'm sure, uh, yeah. So that was quite a good purchase. So I had, in the space of 12 months, having been interested in this man all of my life, I suddenly had presented to me, within the space of 12 months, two totally new, unknown Lavenook microscopes. And that really did knock the history of science sideways with
1: surprise. These samples that you found, were you able to put them under a microscope and look at them to see if they were, what did they look like?
2: Great question. Uh, The the most interesting thing I did was to take the sample in 1981 across, well, not all of the samples, just tiny little bits of them. I took them across to the Netherlands where most of Leeuwenhoek's uh, microscopes were preserved. And I looked at his specimens through his microscope. Now, can you imagine the thrill of doing that? The two were reunited, the specimens of the microscope, for the first time in 308 years, in 1980. But then I looked at uh, small portions under a modern scanning electron microscope, and I could then find details, including his own blood cells left on the samples. He, he used a shaving razor, you see, to cut these fine sections of cork and of, <laughs> um, of elder pith, pith from the stem of an elder And um, if you've shaved with the razor, it's going to have your blood cells on. I found his blood cells on his section. So I was actually able to look at Levenouk's own blood cells after all those centuries still preserved. And and I then looked at them under a modern light microscope, and I realized that the details that you could see in the best modern light microscope was only four times better than you could see with his tiny little microscope made more than 300 years before. Now, if you think of, you know, a modern plane or a modern uh, pen... Or, or a modern car, or a modern anything, the modern version is thousands of times better than the, the first one ever made. The first one ever made is very crude, but not with microscopes. With microscopes, you could see um, even bacteria with these early microscopes. of Leibniz. And with the most modern of the uh, conventional light microscopes, you could only see something a quarter that size. So he was within a factor of four of perfection when he made his own little microscopes at home in Delft as an untrained um, dealer in Texas and a local town official. It's quite remarkable what this man did. And you know, his descriptions of some of these microbes he looked at, they were so clear. that If you read the descriptions, you can identify the microbes to this day from the way that he described them at the time. And he was the first person ever to realize that beyond our sight is this incalculable number of universes populated by microbes. I mean, can you imagine what must have gone on in his mind when he suddenly realized that everywhere he looked there were little microbes that nobody had ever realized
1: yeah that's amazing hmm. well we're close to being out of time already. I mean, it feels like I could speak to you for like you know, twenty four hours straight and not even uh, begin to exhaust the questions, but I did want to ask one one question um, to me i mean here's how I see it is like you know millions of minds have worked really actively to create science and to you know, help our health, et cetera. But yet it seems like, you know, we, we just feebly are barely approaching even a small percentage of what nature can do. And because you think cells are cognitive, I mean, where do you think, uh, I don't know. I mean, where do you think it all came from? What do you think the origin of life is? Where did it come from?
2: Well, I, I did put the idea in the sixties that everybody said that they thought life had come about in pools of uh, prehistoric water on earth. And I thought, well, um, I mean, nothing terribly clever about this line of thought. If I were writing an academic paper on it, I'd make it look clever, but it isn't really. And I thought to myself, yes, but if complex chemicals are evolving in water, they're quite likely to break down in water and hydrolyze as much as, as, much as be built up. And I wondered whether, in fact, they might have uh, originated in outer space. Now, all sorts of molecular reactions happen in outer space, and you've got no water there to interfere with the chemistry. And so I, I just wondered whether early microbes, well, not microbes as such, but the chemicals that would give rise to microbes might have just settled into the water on Earth in a sort of slightly preformed state. And I remember there was a chap, what was his name, 1963, I think, who looked at sections of meteorites and he found what looked to me a little bit like living cells inside. They probably weren't, but they might have been. So I just wondered whether, in fact, life had begun In early space or at least the precursor to life had begun in early space and then when it had settled onto earth and had a few billion years to uh juicify itself and become more complicated it might then have evolved into what we now call life but the point that you made about science is a very good one science has now become an industry in fact uh, curiously enough in a few months time your your listeners must watch out for it um, a book of mine called non-science or non-science returns is coming out now i wrote a book 50 years ago called non-science or nonscience and that said how instead of people doing real science they now use the longest words they can to make quite trivial research sound terribly exciting and they get massive grants, because nobody understands what the heck they're talking about, get massive grants to go off and do research. And they basically con governments into giving them a lovely lavish lifestyle with the belief that what they're researching is terribly important when often it isn't. And so I think that we've actually been taken over by these experts who use the trappings of science to advance their own reputation and to get loads and loads of money to research about next to nothing. And it is interesting that if I look in in the life sciences with my own field, all the time I see people looking at the same old things at chromosomes mitochondria and at genes. But I only know one other person. And he's in Australia. I know one other person who is looking at whole living cells and the way that they make to move about and how they interact with each other and how they live their little lives. We're looking at little bits of cells. We become hooked on reductionism if if ever i say to anybody that i work with microscopes they always say oh i'm sure that's the electron microscope and you want to see things bigger and bigger and i say no i don't everybody else does i want to look at a low magnification a couple of hundred so that i can watch living cells you can't see a living cell in an electron microscope you only see a living cell in water under a light and believe me those of you who've got Uncle's old microscope from the days when he was a doctor tucked away in the attic. Get it out. Get a bit of pond water. When you see a stagnant and you're out with your kids, you will say, oh, stay away from that. That's nasty. When I see a stagnant, I think, oh, I must take a sample home and look at it under my microscope. This is wonderful. And inside yeah, that yeah. little drop of stagnant water is the most extraordinary sight, which Lavenhook first described in June of 1670, and which these days people have quite forgotten to look at is so intent on getting down to smaller and smaller details it's as though you're putting a printed letter under a lens and inspecting the ink and all the time it is part of a play by Shakespeare or a poem by Lord Byron you never even hear the words it's as though it's part of a symphony and you never hear it played all you want to look at is the ink and look at it closer and closer and closer step back appreciate the. and until science does that Science will never get anywhere near completing insurmountable.
1: Well, it's great examples, Brian, and I appreciate you, uh, you coming and uh, taking this time. No,
2: it's been a great pleasure to talk to you.
1: And I do have to apologize for my dog's barking, but I'm stuck at home, as are many, many people. So, Brian, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. It was a great pleasure, and I just hope your listeners got just a little bit of something different
1: out of mm. what I had to
0: say.